Good morning, church. It's good to see you today. <laughs> it's always good to be here. Thank you so much for coming. If you're visiting with us, thank you again for being with us. Um, a Sunday school teacher was telling her class one Sunday morning about the story of the Good Samaritan. And she wanted to display it and, you know, really tell the story with certain meanings, of course which of a man was beaten and he robbed and he was left for dead and how gruesome it really was. She really described the situation in vivid detail. After doing so, she asked the class a simple question and she said, if you saw a person lying on the side of the road all beaten and wounded and bleeding such as this, what would you do? No one said anything and finally a little timid little girl raised her hand and she said, yes, sweetheart, what would you do? And she said, I think I'd throw up. Well, that's a good start. What would you do? What have you done? What do we do? What do we do with this thing about the golden rule? We've all heard about that in our lives, have we not? Sure we have. All of us, I'm sure, have shopped at one time or another, although many of them are probably going out of business these days. We've shopped at a, a JCPenney in time, from time to time. We've shopped there ourselves. But I'll tell you something maybe some of you didn't know. The, the store actually started off being called the Golden Rule Store. It was its title that was given to it. It started by a, a guy by the name of Mr. Penny, of course, and he did not like to use the word it says uh, in some of the teachings about him or the sayings about him. He didn't like to use the word employee. He called those that worked for him and with him associates. He treated them just as he would like to be treated. So when he started these general stores in 1902 and began to build this multi-billion dollar business because he actually lived out the golden rule. Sounds good. How you doing with that? Do you always measure up? Sometimes instead of mine being the golden rule, sometimes I think it's the wooden rule. You know, it's not even the bronze or the, the silver. It's more of like the wooden rule. Anybody but me? Nobody? I guess we can all go home. You guys are doing great. Do you try to treat others like you like to be treated or want to be treated in life? Bruce Ball put it this way, he said, our normal instinct is to think that we would be nicer to others if they would just be nicer to us. It's kind of how we deal with life, isn't it? Sure it is. The problem with that, Jesus didn't say that it's okay for you to do to others in an ugly way before they do ugly to you. He tells us that we are to do to others as you would have them do to you. And it's a struggle that we have. There is no doubt. And for us to be able to do that, we must love our fellow man. There is no doubt. We must love him with a love that we don't have as humans because we don't measure up to this golden rule, the way I see it anyway. In Luke chapter 6, it tells us there, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But also we could even go to here, if you will, to the, to the book of, of Mark and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and love your neighbor as yourself because all the commandments hinge upon these two that I give you. 
Perhaps it's the toughest thing on our journey to do is to do this golden rule thing. Perhaps it's the biggest struggle that we have in our lives as Christians. Why would Jesus tell us to love like that? If he just didn't say those words, we could do what we want to do. Why would he give us instructions to do something that we are incapable of doing as human beings most of the time, or at least some of the time? Perhaps there's a lot of reasons, but one reason for sure, I believe, is that the reason why he does that is so that we will stay humble. That we'll stay humble before him, knowing that we could not do it in and of ourselves. We would have to have a power to motivate us to be able to carry out this thing called the golden rule. To be able to do what God has called us to do. How do you do with that? How are you doing with that in your life? Don't think about someone else and don't think about the person that, you know, gave you that number one sign traveling down the road when you almost cut them off. Think about you and how you react and how you respond. We are commanded to love. Give me an amen. amen. We are commanded to love and we're commanded to love everyone, but everyone is not lovable. If everyone was like me, they'd all be lovable, right? <laughs> Gary, I hear you over there. That is how Jesus lived here on earth. And as we are called Christians, Christ-like, then we are to display in our lives Christ, even in the areas that we struggle with. It doesn't say that we will know, they will know us by the reading of the sign over the door at our church building. They will only know it by the way you love and extend love one toward another. It's tough. It is tough. That's why I want to talk about it. Andrew Murray said it like this. He says, my relationship with God is part of my relationship with men. For failure in one will cause failure in the other. Your relationship with God is also connected to your relationship with your fellow man. Did you know that? It has to be because it's connected in the two commands, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Yikes, I just wish that one wasn't there sometimes. I just wish I could remove that sometimes. John Ashcroft said these words, the most important thing my dad taught me is that there are more important things than me. Wow. We live in a me society today, there is no doubt. It's always been around, but it seems more prevalent today, doesn't it? What can you do for me? What's in it for me? Give me. I deserve this. I can take from you. We have that in our lives. There's an old saying. I'm not sure who said it, but I, I heard this years ago, and I pulled it up again, and, and I looked at it, and I thought about that this week, and I thought, hmm, been on both sides of this one. A pat on the back is only a few vi uh, vertebrae away from a kick in the pants. But the results are much different, aren't they? They are. Well, yes, it is true that we are to have discipline, and yet, in the same time, we are to encourage, Scripture says. We are to love, yet we are to hate, Scripture says. 
Whoever heeds discipline shows the way of life, Proverbs 10. Hebrews 3, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. But in Romans 12, it says, love must be sincere, for hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So if your love is sincere, you got to love something, you got to hate something. You cling to something, but you hate something. But it says hate what is evil. It doesn't say hate people. So God does not contradict himself. We have, we have in this process of our lives and building our lives as Christians, it's not only to come to church on a Sunday and be filled up and encourage one another, it's that we turn loose and we go to our cars and our places that we live, but our places of work and entertainment and all the other likes, and we mix and we commingle, if you will, with other people that don't think like us, that aren't standing in church and, hallelujah, praise God. They're not doing that. They think differently. They act differently. And those are the ones that Jesus walked among as well while he was here. And so he tells us, how are you doing with that? Many people will say that they, they can do it with ease, if only. I always plug in something else. He said, if only you agreed with what I say. Do what I say. Vote like I vote. Look the way I look. Act the way I act. If only you would do those things. If only, then everything would be just fine. But in the process, Jesus did not say, if only. He commanded us to love people. Always. Always. Philippians 2 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. How's your attitude lately? I have a series of messages, attitude check 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 101, 202. You get the picture? Because it's truly about an attitude check in our lives. Every day we get up, we've got to check our attitude. Anybody need an attitude checked? Huh? Anybody like to check somebody else's attitude? Has your attitude toward others been golden lately? i got to be honest with you, mine's not. And uh, that's something I have to deal with with God. But let me add something here because this is important. Many people have somehow come up with the idea that they are exempt from the rule, this rule if you will, on the negative side. They feel that if they are doctrinally right or pure, they don't have to be kind. In other words, what they're saying sometimes is, I'm right, I know I'm right, and everybody else is wrong, and so I have the right to have this attitude. You ever meet somebody like that? I think you probably have. But this is where many non-Christians come into play. Now watch this. Watch how fine the line is as we pull through here. David was talking about this in class today, and he teaches wonderfully, and he has a wonderful gift to teach. You're missing a, a wonderful class, by the way, on Sunday mornings. But in there, there's that fine line, that gray line that we paint there. But many non-Christians have struggles with Christians. They say that they, Christians, uh, they say, or non-Christians say, Christians say, they're like Jesus, and they love like God, but the opposite is displayed in their life. And so what we call that is a thing called hypocrite. And non-Christians will use that often, rightfully, rightfully so sometimes, 
as why they don't want to even look into this thing called Christian. But this is in this same process, and listen, I realize that people can use this as an excuse to get the body of Christ to adapt to their way or the world's way of thinking, and many churches have already applied that into their way of thinking. Did you know that? Well, the world thinks this, or the world voted this way, so we better change this. We better adapt to the world's way of thinking. Do you see what's happening there? Their transformation comes by applying more of the world's way than thinking rather than what Christ has said is the transformation of thinking in Romans chapter 12, once again used in class today, not by accident. Listen, sin is sin. And while it is true that we must not sugarcoat sin, we must always remember that we all sin. Romans chapter 3, 23. It'd be great if we just became Christians and we never sinned again. Did you ever meet a person that said, I never sinned after the day I came to know the Lord? Think about it. So we have to keep it in mind. So there's this balancing, this trying to figure this out, to wade through a world that is full of sin, knowing that oftentimes I do sin, but also connecting with God in a way that I have something there of God to reflect to the world that is still lost. It's a challenge. Isn't it a challenge for you? I would think so. Now, doctrinal matters, they're important. Of course they're important, for they are from God. However, doctrinal correctness exempts no one from following the whole truth of God's Word, does it not? You see, you can pull a particular verse and simply say, Aha, I gotcha! But you have to look at the whole Word of God. That's the swallowing of the camel found over in Matthew chapter 23. You talk about this, you say this, and you do all of that. And he says, what, does, what, what image does he give? He paints the picture of you, what you're doing there is you're, you're straining the gnat. <laughs> got to spit that gnat out. But then the whole time, <laughs> I'm swallowing this camel. So he paints this picture that cannot be any way distorted from the way it really is. You pick at the little things, but the big things, what the heck's wrong with that? What about the speck or what about the beam? you got to get the beam out of your own eye before you can deal with the speck in someone else's eye. So he's, what he's doing there to us as Christians, he's trying to remind us, all through Scripture is remind us, remember, remember what I did for you as you treat other people through me. So in all of that, we see ourselves displaying. Some Christians I have met, they think that they can be arrogant and negative about anything and all things that other people do. And as long as they believe that they are right, think, right with God and things are right with God, God is pleased with that somehow. Well, I have a news alert. God is not pleased that you know the right thing. God is pleased when you obey Him. But not just in the areas that you want to obey. It's easy for me to obey the things that I like or that I'm pretty good at. Amen? It's pretty difficult in the areas that I struggle with or I don't even like. Amen? So see, that's the balance. God is not pleased that you know what is right. God is pleased when we obey Him. 
But obedience with the wrong motive, wrong attitude, wrong arrogance voids out the obedience altogether, Scripture teaches. Obedience is better than sacrifice, 1 Samuel chapter 15, no doubt. But with love, but without love, it is nothing more than a sounding gong, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So one is great and the other one is just what? Without love, it's just bing, bing, bing. Wake up. However, you can get it all right and have no relationship with God. If you don't believe that, read Romans chapter 6 and concentrate on it for a full day. It will change you. And that's what word is, the Word has called us to do, is to examine the Word and allow it to change us. Someone said it's more than about just reading the Bible. It's letting the Bible read me. And you allow it to read you when you absorb it, not through lens of somebody else has told you, but you allow God to seep into your heart and explain to you how it is that your life is with the Word of God in you. It works that way. I have so much to say on that. But again, that does not mean that you condone another person's sin. It means that you display God's love. And there's that fine line because the world will say, you're condoning my sin, so therefore my sin is okay. But what it's doing is what we're called to do is display God's love to a world even in their sin. And that's tough stuff. Jesus didn't excuse or ignore the sin of the woman at the well, did he? Certainly not. He addressed it with a heart of understanding, compassion, and love. And because of it, because of that, we all know what took place. For in John chapter 4, it says, Many of the Samaritans came to know Jesus, believed in him, because of this woman's testimony. You see, this woman had been married five times, and now she was living with a man. In fact, she gets to the point, can you not blame her? Think about it. She's been married five times, abused five times throughout her life, thinking that this man will take care of me. This man will be the right one. This will fill my void. All these things that she had her hopes and dreams of perhaps a family and a home, and all these things were crushed time and time and time again. And she meets Jesus. And now she's even living with the guy. She says, forget that marriage stuff. If I'm going to leave him, I'll just leave him. And now she's living with this man. And Jesus approaches her and approaches her with this love and compassion and all this beautiful heart. And she now displays that to a community which comes to know Jesus as well. Now that story would have been totally different if the disciples would have stayed at the well and Jesus would have went to town looking for food. It would have been totally different, wouldn't it? It would have been, excuse me, who do you think you are? You need to leave. Or at least, the very least would have been, they withdrew from her. We can't be around someone like that. Wow. She would have left perhaps with her water jug filled that day, but she would have missed the filling of the water, the living water that Jesus offers to all of us. Now this is true as well. Many people today want our love and compassion, but they do not want us 
to condemn their sin. They want us to ignore their sin. You see, the dealing with other people on our journey must be approached with the God in us and the God through us, not the doctrine over us. There's a big difference. That doesn't take away from our doctrine. It proves our relationship, once again, talked about in class. Love is what proves your relationship with God. Did you know that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first one right out of the chute. How you doing with that? If you get that one mixed up, messed up, trust me, all the others will never fall into place. They can't. We are called to prove our relationship with God. His word is always truth and will always be truth. But the God in us is what people see long before the truth in which we claim. And that's the way God intended it to be. People will know your doctrine by who you follow, not by one forcing it on anyone. If we follow Jesus and we walk in his footsteps and we love like Jesus, who do you think people are going to expect or see that we are like? Jesus. Our ultimate goal is to be like Jesus. I'm not perfect and neither are you, but I can get a whole lot closer. Can I have an amen? And by doing so, people will know who we follow. If your doctrine is displayed before your relationship, you allow no room for a thing called grace. And I don't care who you are, if you can't have grace, you, I, we are all sunk. For that's precisely what the Pharisees taught and believed. How do I know that? Well, all you have to do is read about them. Let's look at this story. This is another interesting story. This woman is caught in adultery. Now, notice this. She's caught in adultery. It's not fake news. It's not made up. It's not someone accusing. It's someone saying, we've caught her in the act of adultery. That is a huge sin. And they bring this woman, the Pharisees. Notice what takes place here. I love this story. So let's just take a look at it a minute as we move along. Jesus returns is in John chapter 8, for those that are listening. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, and he was back again at the temple. A crowd, a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and talked with them, or talked to them. How'd you do last night? Did you sleep well? Man, that coffee sure does smell good. Did anybody bring the donuts? He just talked with them, just like when we gather. Some came in early, a few more gathered. We're going up the mountainside, wherever it was that he was setting, and there they were. All they wanted was to be at the feet of Jesus. But the Pharisees, now we know the story. As he was speaking to them, the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and placed her out in front of the staring crowd. No, 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 you stand right out there. That's where you're going to stand because we're going to make this all about you. Ha-ha. Now, the Scripture does tell us what was taking place here. It was taking place because they were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to trap him in something. And so through this process, they were trying to trap him of saying that whatever he might say. So in all of this, they say to Jesus then, Teacher, they interrupt him. And they say, teacher, 
Now you know the truth. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses' law says we are to kill her, stone her to death. What do you say? In all of this, I love what Jesus does. Scholars have always tried to figure out, do you ever, ever, ever wonder what he wrote on the ground? Any, it didn't have to say that. It could have just said he stooped down. But it says he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote. Perhaps he wrote out some of the Pharisees' names and said, oh, I remember when. Maybe it was he wrote her name. Nice, beautiful letters. Maybe he wrote a smile or drew a smiley face. I don't know. He wrote something on the ground. But they kept pressing him. Come on, tell us. Now Moses says we're supposed to stone her, and you know what the word says. You know all that stuff. And if you're the teacher, you already know that's true. So what are we supposed to do with this woman? Come on, talk to us. What is it all about? And Jesus is just writing on the ground, seemingly paying no attention to what they want the attention to be brought to. So what takes place next? Jesus stands up again. And he said, you're absolutely correct. Get your stones and start blasting her. And don't stop until she dies. But before you do, before you do, notice what he says. Before you do any of that, make sure who has never sinned, you be the first one to throw the stone. find that interesting. I find it interesting because you see, when someone throws the first stone, the second one's a lot easier. Because I can simply say, I didn't start it, he did. That's what conversations are among us, isn't it? We don't like to talk about people, we don't say nothing about people, but what happens? Somebody's like, you hear, uh, you know, someone told me, I heard something, and, and then when that starts, another, yeah, that's what I, a lot of thinking, no, I, and then all the way through it, what's that person thinking? Or those other people thinking it may even join right in with it. You know what they're thinking? If somebody approaches me, they can simply say, I didn't start talking about it. I just heard it. See how it works? So he said, I'll tell you what, if none of you have ever sinned, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And I love this about our Jesus. He didn't pressure them. He didn't question them like they questioned him. He just stooped back down to the ground. Maybe to finish his smiley face. I don't know. He stoops back down again. And then in all of this, the Jewish leaders slipped away one by one, beginning with the eldest, until all Jesus, only with Jesus was left in front of the crowd and with the woman. Now Jesus was teaching a powerful message right here. He was teaching the Pharisees and leaders the first thing he was doing, he was teaching them a powerful message. You don't even have a clue what you're talking about. And you won't even stand for what you're talking about. Because they all ran off. Then Jesus stood up again and said to her, Well, where are your accusers? Let me see, is there any, any marks on you? Well, I don't even see any one stone mark on you. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Can you see this woman in her embarrassment? And she simply says, no, sir. Not a one. 
And Jesus comes back with what? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now we rush to that go and sin no more stuff. Go and sin no more. That's what we want. You better not ever do that again. If you ever do something like that again, I will never forgive you again. We're all guilty. We're we're, we're all guilty. We came out of the water. We were fresh and clean. All our sins had been forgiven because God promised that. Give me an amen. Has anybody sinned since the day that you were baptized? Yeah. Go and sin no more. Boy, that, that lady is a hard task, doesn't she? She is charged to never sin again. And I just believe that she sinned again. Why? Because she's human. He's telling her, that lifestyle is not right for you. It is sin. But what I want you to see in this right here is so important for me. The Pharisees wanted to apply punishment in order to prove doctrine to control the people. Did you catch that? That's always what they did. They always had to up the ante to the people to keep them under control. So the Pharisees wanted to apply punishment in order to prove doctrine to control the people. But Jesus displayed grace to introduce God to set us free. This is God's grace. Jesus addressed the sin, yes, but not before delivering the grace. He never does, never has, and never will. He just doesn't. Jesus knew the sin that she had committed. And this is so important. Jesus knew that sin that she had committed, no matter how ugly and embarrassing and awful it may have been, was going to be paid for on the cross that he would soon bear for all of us. He knew that. He knew before him was a sinful woman, but he knew before him was a potential child of God first. That's the lens we have to learn to look through. That's why it's called grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Greater Grace that is greater than all our sin. And the church says, amen. For without it, we're sunk. Without grace extended to this woman, she would have lied there under a rubble of rock. And they would have been justified by doing it. But Jesus extended grace. And that grace and that one under the rock could have been me in my life. Because of sin in my life. It's a powerful story. So how do we wrap it up? Ask yourself these simple questions. When it's all said and done... Do you want God to address your sin or accept what Jesus did on the cross for your sin? Our arrival into the presence of God forever will not be based upon a doctrine. It is based upon and solely upon our acceptance of Jesus the Christ, the one that paid the price once and for all. Our doctrine guides us. It points us in a direction, in the right way, but the only Jesus can save us by and through God's grace.
Ephesians. Again, we used it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, doing good and having all the right answers. It is a gift of God. Why is it a gift of God? It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. None of us can boast except in the Lord. None of us have a right to. No matter how pure we think we are, no matter how close we get to God, rocks that lay on the ground were intended for us. Jesus said, I'll take those to the cross. You see, the truth is God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The least we can do is do unto others what He has done for us, is it not? The thing I want you to hear today is this, before we close, and it will lead us to a song here, but the thing I want you to see and hear today is this, that God loves you. That God loves you. And He wants nothing but the best for your life. To prove that, He gave His only Son. His Son was given to redeem you from your sin, not so that you could live in your sin. It's to redeem you from it. It's to pull you out of that way of life. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something that excites you? Today, His grace is extended. Today, His grace is extended. You are the one standing before the crowd. You are the one that is cl- and, and is guilty of the crime, sin. But God is the one. God is the one that extends grace that is greater than all your sin. The question is, will you accept His grace? Will you accept His grace? Our prayer is always the same, is that you do. Because without it, we're all sunk. But praise God for it. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Whatever your need is today, it's a prayer request, come, let us know. If you want to know about baptism, we'd be glad to talk to you about that. If you want to know more about this Jesus that extends grace, we'd be glad to talk to you about it. Maybe you have a hurt, maybe you have a pain, maybe you have a problem, maybe you have a situation. Good, bad, uglies, and all those things. We're not here to condemn. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility. We will not and cannot sugarcoat sin. But we try our best to reach out with God's grace, God's love. Because what you may be going through today may be something I go through tomorrow. And what I'm going through today may be something that you go through tomorrow. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Whatever your need is, you come together as we stand and sing. God bless you.